Lesson number one. If you are, no, there's two lessons. Lesson number one. If you are, no, there's two lessons to friends. <laughs> Second lesson is never sabotage the guy who's in charge of what goes up on the screen next week. <laughs> never do that. Bad idea. Lesson number one. If you are, no, there's two lessons. Lesson number one, if you are, no, there's two lessons. See you all uh, this morning, um, more glad even than normal because uh, we were gone last week. We took a trip to Tennessee to watch the Vols get beat in the fourth quarter one more time uh, by the Arkansas Razorbacks, but praise the Lord, redemption came with the Bulldogs. So, um, but it's also good to see you for an even an another reason. I wasn't sure if we were going to make it to today. I don't know if you guys saw the news this week or looked at the USA Today, but the end of the world was supposed to have happened on Wednesday. Did you read that? Yeah. Like annihilated end of the world on Wednesday. The USA Today reported this. Chris McMahon is the founder of eBible Fellowship which is a church, apparently, out of Sharon Hill, Pennsylvania. And he predicted that the world was to be annihilated this past Wednesday. McMahon claimed to have studied the Bible, obviously omitting Matthew 24, where Jesus says, no one knows the hour or the time. And to have concluded that uh, he had gotten it wrong when he had previously claimed that the end of the world was going to be May 21st, 2011, and that the correct date was actually October 7th, 2015. Speaking of his prediction, McMahon said this, there is a strong likelihood that this will happen, which means there's an unlikely possibility that it won't. Nothing like hedging your bets on the end of the world, right? So I'm glad to see we all made it. I really am. Um, and as I read this article, I kind of gave a smirk. And then, then the thought occurred to me. I wonder what Wednesday was like for members of that church. I mean, if they were sincere about their belief that the world was going to be ending on Wednesday, and it wasn't just some hoax, then I have to imagine Wednesday was not a normal day. They didn't set the alarm and get up and take a shower, eat breakfast, and head off to run errands and, and to work. I mean, this was their last day on earth. I mean, if, if Tim McGraw was a part of this church, he'd be skydiving and Rocky Mountain climbing and riding some bull named Fu Manchu, right? That's not your normal day. Pastor and author Tim Keller said something really remarkable that we're going to kind of try to wrap our brains around this morning. He said this. He said, what you believe about the future is one of the best predictors of how you will live today. Let me say that again. What you believe about the future is one of the best predictors of how you will live today. I find this to be absolutely true. 
What you believe about the future affects how you live today. A year ago this month, I received a phone call from my mom letting me know that uh, my Nana had had a stroke and that the doctors uh, believed she wouldn't recover from it and she could have only a week to live. And I believed the doctors about their prediction of the future and it changed my entire week. I was able to go and see her and say goodbye. And um, if I had not believed their prediction, uh, my, my week may not have changed. But what I did believe changed what I did. And so today, we're going to be continuing our study of mentors and prayer by traveling to the future with the Apostle John, to the book of Revelation, to the very throne room of God, where the colors and the creatures and the sounds are really incomprehensible. Um, and we're going to allow Revelation to be a tutor for us in how we should pray. Because if it is true that what you believe about the future will affect the way that you live today, then the book, about, the book of Revelation should be one of the most practical and applicable books of the Bible. Right? But that's not how we think of the book of Revelation, right? Not at all. When, when, when someone, so, so Larry asked if I would preach this sermon months ago, and, um, and I said, Revelation? Really? Because when we think of Revelation, we think of controversy and confusion, right? The, the beautiful unity of the church is divided into these groups of pre-trib and post-trib and pre-millennial and post-millennial and amillennial and, and Sam, Sam Williams' own uh, self-defined pan-millennial, where he believes in the end it will all pan out. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. I don't know why you haven't written a book about it yet. I love what uh, one theologian said. He said, the millennium is a thousand years of peace that Christians like to fight about. <laughs> you can put that in your book. <clears throat> but the, the questions of how and when the apocalypse is going to happen uh, often cause us to miss the glorious picture of God's sovereignty of his power, his dominion, his justice that should affect the way that we live today. Now, I'm not saying your beliefs on how and when the events of Revelation unfold are not important. They are. And they do affect the way in which you think and live today. A, a premillennialist thinks differently than a postmillennialist does about where we are and how we should be ministering in lots of ways. But we're not asking the question of how and when. Today, I want to ask the question of who is God revealed to be in Revelation 4 and 5? And how does that affect the way in which I speak to him and of him? How does it affect the way in which I pray? So turn with me to Revelation chapter 4. Let's pray and let's ask him now for guidance and for illumination. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Lord, your word is a lamp into our feet, a light into our path. 
And you've given us, you've given us this glimpse into the future that our hope might be fully established in you. We are thankful, God, for the testimony of history that every promise you have made, you have answered and kept. And so when we look to our future, when we stand looking to our future hope, may we be reminded of your faithfulness till now. May we place our faith here in such ways that it affects the way in which we live today, in which we pray today, as we behold you glorious, throned, uh, receiving the praise of all creation. Allow our hearts to be in awe, to be stunned. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Revelation 4 and 5 are two chapters describing one scene. It is the throne room of God. And then as I was studying uh, for today, I went to YouTube and I looked for videos, <laughs> which is a scary thing to do, um, that I, was, I, we were, I wanted to read both these chapters together, and it's a lot of reading. And I know that sometimes I fall asleep when I'm reading by myself, and so I didn't want to bore you too much. So I was looking for something that would capture your imagination. And here's the problem. Uh, the Apostle John is trying to describe the indescribable. He's using simile all over the place. It's not that it is a rainbow. It's kind of like a rainbow. It's not that they... You know, it's not that they, these beasts uh, had the face of a man and an ox. It was like the face of a man and an ox. It's all this stuff. And so here we are in our 21st century thinking, okay, well, now I've got CG graphics. Oh, man, if John had had CG graphics, then he could really have described this for us. And so I'm watching these videos, and I'm like, man, it's a little cheesy. So... So what I want to do is I want to just read it, and I want you to, this is going to be old-fashioned, but you know what? Our ancestors used to do this. They used to sit and listen to the Word, and their imaginations were fully engaged, and we survived. So I want you to listen to this with your imagination fully engaged. Think, paint this picture in your head, this indescribable picture in your head. And uh, let's, let's think about those two questions what do I learn about God in this, who he declares himself to be, and how then should I speak to him? Revelation chapter 4. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 other thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes and lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures 
full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. For you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voices of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. 
And the elders fell down and they worshiped. Come up for air. I know there's, there's like, your brain's like, ouch, that hurts. It's, it's in so many ways just incomprehensible. But the first thing I want you to notice is that even though there are rainbows that look like emeralds and there are elders dressed in brilliant white and there are these creatures with eyes all over them, the center of attention the center of the whole scene is where? The throne. The throne. It is all centered on the throne. This is not your traditional medieval throne room, right? So that's what I think of when I think of a throne room. I have been culturally desensitized to what a throne room looks like, right? This, this, it's not like this. The subjects are all in front of you, and there you are in front. This is worship in the round, right? Everything finds its center on the throne. Sam Storms, theologian Sam Storms says, everything in heaven finds its place somewhere in a circular relationship to around the throne. John thus describes the throne of God as the focus of a series of concentric circles made up first of a rainbow, then a circle of four living creatures, then a circle of 24 thrones upon which sit 24 elders. But the throne is the center of it all. Now this is not to say that all those things aren't significant and have meaning Commentators have a plethora of ideas on the identity of the 24 elders. Um, many believe that it's a combination of the 12 tribes of Judah and the 12 apostles put together. Many believe that they are uh, a category of angel, that they are um, a special uh, guard of angels. Um, there are just as many ideas on the, the living creatures, the lion, the ox, the one with the face of a man and the eagle. Uh, most commentators believe that they, they represent attributes of God, who God is. So the lion represents his royal power, the ox, his strength, the uh, face of a man represents his spirituality and the eagle, uh, his swiftness to action. But what's important, folks, is not who these people are. It's what they do. Just look with me at chapter 4, verse 8. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy. It's the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. I mean, we sang that several times this morning. And every single time we're singing it, I am, I, I, because my brain's been here all week, I'm just, I'm seeing this picture. And it is awesome. Their worship is day and night. It never ceases. It is continual at all times. 
They are at all times captivated, amazed, transfixed, enthralled, in awe of him who sits on the throne and the Lamb. Their delight in him never wearies. Their pleasure in him never decreases. Their voices never wear out. Their wonder never diminishes. Now, if your brain's not hurting yet, it is now. Because, man, I get tired. I wear out just from being up for 12 hours a day. Much less being engaged in ceaseless praise, ceaseless awe. But here's the difference. They're in the presence of Almighty God. They're upheld by His strength, His power. We can learn something about how they respond to His presence. Because the fact is, is that He has graced us with His nearness now. When was the last time you were blown away awestruck by our God in such ways that your heart was up in your throat at the idea that this God who carved the abyss of the ocean with his finger, who set the sun in the sky, who spins galaxies in orbit, who, who creates the density of a black hole. I was reading, a scientist said that if the earth were to be swallowed within a black hole, the density of the black hole would squish the earth to the size of a peanut. That's weight. I mean, that is heavy. So our God blinks an eye and knocks, n- knocks a black hole out of, out of its place. His strength is that much. And it is that God, it's that amazing God who loves you in such tender ways as to know your anxiety, as to know your fears. He knows your pain. And he loves you so much that he would give the greatest thing he could give to anyone, himself. He gave us himself. George Friedrich Handel was a guy I had to study in school and who's someone that you're probably familiar with, even though you may not know his name. He's generally regarded as one of the greatest composers who's ever lived. He wrote over 20 oratorios, more than 40 full operas, as well as numerous concertos, cantatas, anthems, sonatas. But Handel's life was anything but tranquil. He was notoriously hot-tempered, frequently engaging in fights with other musicians. You should come to one of our worship rehearsals sometime. He he hit especially a low point in 1741 at the age of 57 when he was hopelessly in debt, was suffering from depression. And one day he got a knock on the door from a young poet named Charles Jenez. He appeared at his door unannounced, and he delivered to Handel a collection of biblical passages under the title of a sacred oratorio. Half-heartedly, Handel began to read the manuscript, and as he did, 
the prophetic utterance of Isaiah concerning the coming of the Messiah began to lift him from his depression and reverberated in his soul. Wonderful counselor, the mighty God, everlasting father, the prince of peace. And as if by divine compulsion, Handel closes the door to his room and for the next 25 days, he composes Sometimes he went without food, lest he would be interrupted. At times he would leap into the air, waving his hands and shouting, Hallelujah! And when it was done, he said, I think I did see all of heaven before me and the great God himself. And what, we, what he wrote, we know as the Messiah. One author has said that it is uh, considering the immensity of the work which it is, it's 260 pages of manuscript. And the short time, 25 days that was involved, it will remain perhaps forever the greatest feat in the whole history of musical composition. It was first performed on April 13th, 1742, and the following year, it was performed in London for the king. And as the choir began to sing what we now know as the Hallelujah Chorus, King George II was so stirred that he rose up from his seat. And when everyone saw the king stand, they all stood. And to this day, that custom is still held every single time we hear it. We stand. The Hallelujah Chorus is by universal consensus the single most inspiring and spiritually charged chorus of praise and worship ever written. One cannot help but wonder, what inspired Handel to write it? What was his muse? What, uh, what had he seen or heard or felt that led him to compose this song? Well, the Messiah as a whole, and more specifically, the Holy Chorus, were inspired by Handel's meditation on the exalted and majestic view of Christ and God that we see in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. He had been meditating on what we just read. And what was this composer's response to what we just read? You know, our brains are going, ouch, ouch, ouch. His brain was going, ouch, ouch, whoa! Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. I mean, that's what I mean, that's where he went, right? But we 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 struggle with that. Again, Sam Storms, I think, says it so well. He says, many have lost their sense of awe and amazement when it comes to God. They think they already have a grip on all there is to know about God, or at least all that one needs to know. They re they've reduced God to manageable terms, placed him in a cute little theological box whose dimensions are of their own making, and then pride themselves on being able to describe and define him. Ouch. But, but who are we kidding? This is... This is the God who created you and me. This is, 
This is God Almighty. He, he is indescribable. When people meditate on him, they end up writing the Hallelujah Chorus. When, when John tries to describe him, the closest he can come is Jasper and Carnelian, stones. The only, of all the theophanies that are in the Bible, that, are, that, that, that means of all the appearances of God to human beings, there are only two that attempt to describe God the Father. It's really interesting. Ezekiel has a very similar account as well as Daniel of the throne room that we see in Revelation 4. But, but nobody tries to describe God the Father except for John, he who sits on the throne, except for John and Ezekiel. John says he looks like Jasper and Carnelian. Ezekiel says from the waist down he looks like fire. And from the waist up, he looks like gleaming metal. Thanks. I could draw him now. Right? He's indescribable. So when we sing Revelation song, and we describe God clothed in rainbows and flashes of lightning and rolls of thunder, which are all, you know, descriptions from Revelation 4. And then when we get to the next verse and we sing, filled with wonder, awestruck wonder at the mention of your name. Does that, does that penetrate you as much today as it did the first time you sang it? Or perhaps the first time you read Revelation 4? It's important to say and to note that our wonder of God is not born of ignorance. It's born of knowledge. It's not that he's incomprehensible and so we just worship this thing that we can't know. No, he's revealed himself to us. In fact, when, when we get to Revelation 5 and we begin seeing them uh, sing of the lamb, they're singing about what the lamb has done. Worthy are you because you were slain, and by your blood you have redeemed men for God. It's our knowledge of who God is and what he has done that pushes our wonder of who he is. It's not born out of ignorance. So, this is who God has revealed himself to be. How then should we speak of him and to him? How should this affect the way in which we pray? Let's take our cue from the heavenly throng. There are five hymns slash prayers that flow out of these two chapters. The first two are addressed to God the Father. The second two are addressed to the Lamb. And the last one is addressed to both. And there is this, there's this crescendo of sound, this gradual increase of the volume of people as each one takes place until at the very end all of creation is singing so the first song is in chapter four and it's given by the four living creatures and then the 24 elders follow they sing holy 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 is the lord god almighty who was and is and is to come I don't know of any better word to describe the uniqueness and the ultimate perfection of God than the word holy. When we pray, it is good for us to describe God this way, to talk to him in this way, because 
inherently, when we call God holy, we separate him from us, and it puts us in a humble position, in a humbled state. This is exactly what we see happens in Revelation. The four living creatures sing, holy, 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 whoops, is the Lord God Almighty. And what immediately follows is the elders hear it, and they fall down in worship. They throw their crowns down around the glassy sea. And then after, uh, after the um, four living creatures have engaged, then the 24 elders join in. They sing, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. He is the Alpha, He is the Omega, He is the beginning, He is the end. All things are created through Him and for Him. He is, he is God our Creator, and because of that intrinsic um, characteristic alone, He is worthy of worship. I love the way renowned scientists uh, have, have described the fact that as they continue to study um, they are more and more aware that there is a grand designer behind it all. Isaac Newton said, the admirable arrangement and harmony of the universe could only have come from the plan of an omniscient and omnipotent being. And Albert Einstein said, everyone who has seriously committed to the cultivation of science becomes convinced that in all the laws of the universe is manifest a spirit vastly superior to man and to which we with our powers must feel humble. God is creator. That alone should humble us. And we should, we should pray this to him, thank him for, for the fact that he is the source of all things. Then after the elders have joined in the song, we move to chapter 5, and the lion of the tribe of Judah appears. But th this, is, this is crazy. The, the, the elder looks at John, he says, don't weep for the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse is here, and John's got to look at the throne and he's got to be looking for a lion, right? But he doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb. A lamb as if it was slaughtered. This is the prophesied perfect lamb of Isaiah 53. This is the lamb that comes to take away the sin of the world in John chapter 1. He is the unblemished, spotless lamb of 1 Peter 1. And here, Christ the lamb takes center stage. And when he arrives, grabs the scroll from the Father, ready to open its seals and begin the final judgment. All praise and prayers are now offered to him. And so the next two songs or the next two prayers come from the living creatures, begin with the living creatures and the elders. And they say, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom 
and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then, almost out of nowhere, thousands and thousands and myriads and myriads of angels appear. And I love this because John's taking in this whole scene. You've got all of chapter 4, and he's describing all these things he's seeing. And it's like he's totally unaware that there's myriads and myriads of angels surrounding him, right? And so they're all, they've all been quiet up until now, and there's been all this praise going on. Then it's, I, I imagine it like this. He's watching all this take place, and then imagine thousands of angels behind you, and then all of a sudden they start singing. And you like jump out of your seat. And they begin singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And as the songs rise and the rumble of the multitude of voices begins resounding throughout all of heaven, creation itself cannot contain its joy and its love. And like the eruption of, an, of a volcano that's been sitting dormant for, for a long time. Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them begin to shout. So in other words, all creation joins in this song to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. We've, we sang that several times this morning. Every single time we did, I just thought, man, all creations, that is going to be, you guys were loud. The band was, was pretty loud. I'm, I'm always one that could tell Darren he could turn it up more. But it was loud, but this is all creation joining in. So this is amazingly loud. And we hear this declaration of praise several times in what we just read and throughout the book of Revelation. Just Revelation 4.11, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Revelation 5, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne, the end of Revelation 5, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Revelation 7, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 19, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. So these eruptions of praise, these ascriptions of of God are given to him for, for two primary reasons. Number one, these are intrinsic characteristic values of our God. He is wisdom. He is omniscient. He is all-knowing. He possesses all riches, as we've already talked about. He is the source of all things. He created it all. He possesses all glory. John Piper uh, describes God's glory as the radiance of his holiness, the radiance of his manifold, all put together, infinitely worthy and valuable perfections. This is intrinsic. This is who God is. 
And so heaven is declaring these things because it is who he is. But they also are declaring these things because of what he has done. God is worthy to receive these things because he has redeemed creation. He is making it anew. Um, and he is worthy to receive all honor because he has redeemed men from every tribe and tongue by his blood. So they, they declare these things, they all thanksgiving, all blessing, all honor in response to who he is and to what he's done. So, listening to how heaven reacts to the God that we've described, how they speak of him and to him, I think wisdom for us dictates that we learn from this. We learn from them. So how, how can we incorporate these things into our prayers, into the way in which we pray? Let me give you three things. Two are declarations, and one is a petition. The first is that uh, we should declare God's intrinsic worth. We should declare who he is. And we find this, we find this true in the prayers all throughout God's word. Psalm 29, verse 1 and 2. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. It has nothing to do with what he's done. It just has to do with who he is. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? These verses uh, help us remember who he is. And then the second thing we can do is we can declare what he has done in our prayers. It's what, that's how heaven responds to him. Psalm 86, verses 8 and 10. There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous deeds. You are alone are God. In 1 Chronicles 16, 23, sing to the Lord all the earth, proclaim good tidings of his salvation, from day to day, tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He also is to be feared above all gods. And the third, the third thing is a petition that, um, that I make regularly. Um, we, should ask, we should ask God for so much grace and help in increasing our wonder as our knowledge of him increases. A wonder that does not fade, but increases as we grow in knowing him. How, and, and this, this, is, this is so troubling for most of us, how could it be that the God whom we have read about today, who has been described today, how could he ever become common to us? 
every day. But he does. We get weighed down by the worries and carries of this world. We take our eyes off of him. And slowly but surely, there's this gradual reduction in our sense that this is a breathtakingly transcendent God that we worship. This is, this is one of the reasons why years ago, right after I graduated from seminary, we were looking at just writing some songs and I found the text of Christ our Savior in a book. And it was just the text. There was no music to it. And I began reading the text and I was blown away by this back and forth between what I know about God and what I don't know about God and the greatness as much of the knowing and the, as of the not knowing. So the verses, I cannot tell why he whom angels worship should set his love upon the sons of men. I cannot tell. I, I cannot know. And then there's this turn. But this I know, that he was born of Mary. But this I know, he heals the brokenhearted. But this I know, myriads and myriads of human voices shall sing. If we were able to, to know fully this grand God, would he really be God? It's the mystery of who he is, the wonder of who he is that should increase with what we know. And unfortunately, um, in a very deceptive way, Satan moves God off the throne of my heart and replaces, replaces God with me and my knowledge of him, my ability to describe him, my ability to uh, put him in, as Sam put it, a theological box. We should ask God to increase our wonder as our knowledge of him increases. So how is it going back to the original uh, premise, how does what you believe about the future affect the way in which you live and pray today? Some of you may not be able to say that you've ever believed in what the Bible has to say about the future or about anything. The Bible, the Bible tells us that uh, the God who we've been speaking of today loves you so much that he offered his one and only son in order that you may know him and have this future. This ridiculous future in his presence is bought for you by the precious blood of the lamb. That's how much he cares for you. The Bible also tells us that he cares so much for you that he determines the times and the places in which you live that you might groan for him, grope for him, reach out for him. So if you're in this room and you're thinking that uh, you alone made the decision to come and, and be a part of this service today, um, my encouragement to you is that there is another God. There, there is a God who, who had this planned as well. And who desires to know you. 
and who desires to save you from your sin and give you a hope beyond any hope I'm able to describe or John's able to describe. So the worship team's going to come. They're going to uh, get, lead us in some songs of response. And as they do, I want to invite you, if you've never placed your faith in Christ, you would like uh, direction in that. Our pastors and elders are always available at the end of our services. We're going to be down here um, singing. Please come and grab us or, or grab, grab the person who you came with. Also, the rest of you, I want to encourage you to use this time of singing uh, to pray. Sing of, of God's intrinsic worth. Pray, of, pray and thank him for what he has done. Ask him to increase your wonder. Give thanks for the fact that salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. Give him praise and glory and wisdom and honor and strength and blessing and thanksgiving today. Uh, let's put to practice and apply what we believe about the future. Would you stand with me and let's worship.